Simon, and our guest today on Healthy Options is Patrick McRoy, the Deputy Director of Defend Our Health. That is a nonprofit public health organization based in Portland, Maine. Defend Our Health has been actively engaged in exposing the dangers of PFAS's, the forever chemicals, which are contaminating our food, water, soil, and products, and even ourselves. Patrick McRoy has previously served as the executive director of the Alliance for Healthy Homes. That's a national advocacy organization focused on eliminating health hazards in housing. Under his direction, the Alliance advanced congressional action and regulations to protect families from formaldehyde, lead, and radon, and from toxic chemicals that are found in so many products that we use every day. He has also worked as an epidemiologist with the state of Rhode Island and as an epidemiologist and director of the city of Chicago's lead poisoning prevention program. Patrick McRoy is on Healthy Options today to talk with us about PFAS's, those forever chemicals we've been hearing so much about recently here in uh, our, the great state of Maine, <laughs> and about the serious health concerns associated with their extensive use. Welcome to Healthy Options, Patrick McRoy. So glad that you could be with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Rhonda. I appreciate the, the warm welcome and excited to be here. So let's start at the beginning. You know, I know these uh, that we're hearing about farmers having contaminated soil. We're hearing about other aspects of these, quote, forever uh, uh, chemicals. But maybe we could unpack this a little and find out what what are we what are we talking about? What is a, a, a PFSA? And, and the, well, we'll continue from there. But let, let's just start with the, the very basics. Sure. So PFAS uh, stands for per or polyfluoroalkyl substance, which is a real mouthful, which is why we call them PFAS. And PFAS are a class of chemicals. It's actually a group of uh, five to 8,000 different chemicals uh, that share a number of properties. Uh, one of those properties is they all have a carbon fluorine bond in them, uh, which is one of the toughest bonds in chemistry. Uh, and what that really means uh, is that these chemicals don't break down. Uh, so that's why we call them forever chemicals. Once they are released to the environment, they're going to be in environment for a really, really long time. And once they get into your body, your body can't break them down easily and has a very hard time eliminating them. Uh, so they've been used in all sorts of different products and applications. Uh, because of their chemistry, they provide uh, water and stain resistant properties. Uh, so oftentimes they've been used in everything from food packaging uh, to prevent grease from getting through a paper wrapper, for example, uh, to coatings on our outerwear. So it's hard actually to buy a rain jacket or any sort of outerwear that doesn't have a PFAS coating on it. Is, is that a stable, um, chem is it, is it bonded into that fabric? Or just, just since many of us, especially in Maine and, and our listeners all over the country are, are uh, out, in the, out and about doing a lot of outdoor activities in the, in the weather. Um, if you are wearing a waterproof jacket, is it bonded or is it, can it come off just wearing it? Sadly, it can come off while wearing. 
so I think is probably everyone has had the experience that over time a raincoat or a jacket loses its waterproofing. Uh, and that's part of what's happening. The, uh, the coatings that include the PFAS are uh, slowly uh, coming off of the jacket. And that's part of the reason why they stop being water repellent or waterproof over time. Well, I know that there, uh, from every level, that there are a lot of people out there going, oh my goodness, right now. So if you get a croissant or you're going out to your favorite pizza place and you have those, we, we all, I always thought was wax paper, but it's not wax paper, is it? It's often the, the wax coating in many cases is a PFAS compound or uh, a wax with a, an additional PFAS component to it. Uh, and that, you know, it, it, they're very effective at preventing, you know, the greasy burger you get the drive through from leaking through to your pants while you try to eat it in the car. <laughs> but unfortunately, that uh, which is not a healthy thing. We shouldn't be talking about that. Don't, healthy do, that. Options. Don't uh, do that. But, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, that wrapper, uh, the chemicals in that wrapper are going to be around uh, practically forever. Uh, and it has a potential when you, you know, not only is there potential for some of the PFAS in the wrapper to come off into your food, uh, but when we dispose of that wrapper, uh, we have to deal with that waste problem for a really, really long time. So it breaks down into the soil or into the water. It can, uh, if it's sent to a landfill, uh, it can uh, eventually enter the landfill leachate, which is the fancy term for the garbage water, right? So all the, the rain or the liquid it's in a garbage is going to collect at the bottom of the landfill. It has to be pumped up and dealt with. And that's going to include some of the PFAS that leaches out. Additionally, uh, PFAS were often used in compostable uh, foodware. So if you think of a paper plate, uh, many of those have been coated with PFAS again. So uh, either greasy foods or liquidy foods don't seep through the paper plate. And some of those paper plates are even labeled as compostable, intended to go to either a commercial compost facility or your garden compost. Yet those have PFAS that are then going to be released into the compost and then ultimately into the soil. So essentially what you're telling us is that we have, all of us have had massive exposure just living our 20, 20th, 21st century lives in these days. So, and this started back with Teflon, right? In the, the 1930s, 40s. This, so this has been many, many years. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, these chemicals originally came into use uh, post-World War II and their popularity increased greatly uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and they continue to be widely used today. So uh, a couple of things, when we are talking about those, those uh, chemicals, P PFAS, and you can tell us the uh, scientific name again, um, I will allow you to pronounce it. <laughs> per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. There are thousands of them, are there not? We're, we're not there talking are. about one thing. And I, I will get to the whole idea of what's happening in Maine and, and such, but there are, uh, what I've been reading, over 9,000? There's actually several different estimates out there of how many, uh, but 
anywhere between uh, four and nine or ten thousand, uh, depending on how you how you count and uh, you know what's been widely used or what's sort of just been created in a lab. But the the fundamental point is this is a class of chemicals and they all share that property that they do not break down easily. Uh, and it's that persistence, we call it, that gives us a lot of concern. Because uh, a lot of toxics, when they're released into the environment, we know over time they're going to decay. PFAS, though, stay the same chemical and therefore build up over time. Okay, I, I just had to pause to take this in. Everybody pause. It's okay, breathe. We're going to talk about um, about how, how to deal with this in our in our lives in a, in a moment. Are there, I know that there's conversation about, well, we know that these are bad, so we should have different, new, newer chemicals. We have newer PFASs that will do the same thing and they're safer. Is that myth? Fact check, where, where are we with, with that kind of thinking? I would suggest that that's a dangerous path to go down. Uh, so most uh, of the research on the health impacts of PFAS were conducted on uh, a type of PFAS that was more common uh, 20, 30 years ago. Industry in the U.S. has moved away from using those particular PFAS uh, because of the emerging, uh, then emerging health impacts and regulatory concerns. So the industry saw the writing on the wall. Everyone was realizing these compounds had toxic effects, and they saw that the government was going to regulate. So they stopped using uh, these two particular well-studied compounds and instead moved to new formulations that still have the same properties, the same sort of basic concern with that fluorine carbon bond that is nearly unbreakable. Um, but could industry was then able to say, well, these, you know, we don't, there's no proof that these are harmful. Um, and we've seen this time and time again in uh, toxic chemical uh, policy responses in the US where scientists show that a compound is harmful. Uh, so industry just sort of uh, does a quick fix, changes one or two things around. Uh, so that's slightly different. Uh, the scientists quickly look at it and say, that's likely to have the same impacts, but industry says, well, uh, there's no proof. So until you can prove it's harmful, we're gonna continue to use it. Uh, we call that a regrettable substitution where uh, we move from one known toxic chemical to a slightly different chemical that is probably just as toxic, but which we know less about and in the end turns out to be just as bad or worse. And all of the scientists who are studying the PFAS uh, compounds and their impacts are telling us these new varieties pose many of the same concerns and are likely to be just as bad in particular because industry actually has to use more of these chemicals to get the same result as the previous ones. Uh, so even though some of them may be slightly less toxic in the human body, we're exposing people to even higher levels of them uh, 
Uh, so that sort of undoes all the theoretical benefit. Because uh, you're just getting yes. larger amounts of a slightly less toxic substance. So let's talk about testing. Um, are there tests to ac actually say what these what these chemicals are? Let's remind ourselves that these are a class of chemicals. And by the way, if you have just joined us, you are listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest today is Patrick McRoy, Decu Deputy Director of Defend Our Health. The topic today is forever chemicals, or P PFASs, P PFAS, and the harm caused by these toxic substances, which are everywhere. And we'll get into some of the ways that, that this is affecting our bodies as well. But uh, right now we're uh, going to get, we're getting uh, PFAS's 101 here from, uh, from Patrick. And we're learning now about whether there are tests, whether there is in fact a way to detect these and, and what we know about that. So we can measure PFAS in the environment. We're, we're very good now at measuring for a handful of the common PFAS in drinking water. Uh, we can measure for a handful of PFAS in consumer products or in waste material or other kind of uh, solid objects. Uh, it gets harder if we want to measure the total amount of any member of the PFAS class, um, that becomes more of a technical challenge for laboratories. Uh, so oftentimes, particularly when you're seeing the news in Maine about PFAS being present in farmland or in uh, sewer sludge or in drinking water, what we're really talking about is just one of the small handful of PFAS that the labs are actually able to individually measure. Uh, depending on the lab, there's about 28 to 36 uh, PFAS that are commonly measured. Uh, and many of those are actually the older ones that industry has moved away from. Uh, so we often don't have a very good sense of how much of the newer PFAS are actually in the environment or in our products. I see. And and so I know that there has to do with the let's get into a tiny little bit of chemistry here so that we uh, we know what we're talking about. You know, we are a very uh, sophisticated listening audience here. So I think we can we can bring it up, uh, bring it up a notch in terms of what we're what we're talking about. So we're are we saying that I know that it has to do with you're talking about those those bonds, those carbon bonds. And we're talking about whether they're I, I was reading things about long chain or short chain and half lives. So we're saying they're forever. And they are somewhat deteriorating, but they're not. I, it's a little confusing what, 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 when we say forever and then uh, someone's saying, but it's a half-life. And if it's in your blood, it's going to every four years, it, could, it, it can get lighter if you're not, uh, you know, it can dissipate. So what, let's talk about that. Well, we're getting, we're getting into PFAS 201 or 301 here. Okay. But uh, the, the short answer is that uh, I tend to not use the long versus short chain because there's no uniform agreed upon definition of what is long, what is short. Industry likes to use that to try to 
uh, classify all the problems into the quote unquote long chain ones that they've stopped uh, manufacturing. Um, but there's not actually great agreement into how to define what is long or what is short anyway. Okay. Uh, however, you know, we, it is, it is fair to say that the longer, uh, chain PFAS stick around longer in your body. Once they get into it, many, not necessarily all, uh, but many of the newer ones spend less time in your body. And that's often what we're seeing referred to as a half-life. That doesn't necessarily mean that the compound is getting broken down in your body. It just means your body finds a way to excrete it. Uh, so over the half-life really in that context refers to how long it takes uh, for your body to excrete half of the volume of chemical. But the so, problem, as I was saying before, with the, the newer quote unquote short chain ones is they're used in higher volume. So if you think of that outerwear, that jacket, as we were talking about earlier, it requires more of that quote unquote short chain to be applied to it in the first place. So yes, your body may excrete it faster, but you're probably being exposed to a higher dose in the first place. So that sort of evens it out. Um, there's further complications when you get into discussing half-lives in the environment. Uh, there are some PFAS that do break down, but they break down into other PFAS. Um, so it's sort of, you know, we, we like the term forever chemicals because it really does get to the notion that once they are released into the environment, uh, they're not going to degrade into something that's probably harmless. Uh, they may degrade into other PFAS, um, you know, on some, you know, large, large scale of time, they will degrade in other ways. But uh, to keep it simple, we just kind of refer to them as a, as a group that way. As a, for, as a forever chemical. Now, the whole idea about excreting, and uh, now we get into... Uh, to the nitty nitty gritty, as it were. So this is going into the wastewater, and it, then it goes into a wastewater plant uh, or a treatment facility. And then what happens? So let's talk about that chain, because I think that's very uh, pertinent to what's happening here in Maine, isn't it? It is, it is. So the reason why PFAS became a major topic of conversation here in Maine is because We've identified farms that are producing contaminated dairy products uh, and contaminated agricultural products uh, because of PFAS in the soil. That PFAS in the soil came from sewage sludge. Uh, so, you know, whatever we put down the drain, you know, and it's not just human waste, but you think of all the different cleaning products that you use in your home. Uh, the PFAS that comes off the jacket when you wash it, right? All of that goes down the drain. And at a sewage treatment facility, they uh, have to basically separate the solids from the liquids. And all of the solids end up in uh, a sludge. And that sludge needs to be disposed of in some way. Uh, so, you know, for the last 40 years or longer, 
uh, much of that sludge was disposed of by using it as fertilizer on agricultural land. And if it really was just human waste, that makes a lot of sense, right? There's a lot of benefits uh, to using waste as a fertilizer. Uh, you know, it makes ecological sense, keeps that circle moving. Uh, but unfortunately, there are all these other chemicals that we're putting into uh, the sewer system that are also then ending up in that sludge. Uh, so that is really how we have seen such widespread contamination. In addition, uh, there are certain industrial facilities that also have a wastewater treatment plant on site that produce sludge. Some of the sludge um, from these facilities was also land applied and that also likely contributed to the PFAS problem. Uh, but we know from actual testing that over 95% of the you know, actual uh, municipal sewer system sludge fails the state screening level for PFAS, right? So we know it's a widespread problem that's actually associated with our actual sewer sludge. Okay, there's so many directions to go in. We're on healthy options here, so I want to talk about um, definitely some of the things that are uh, that that we know are happening in our bodies, or are potentially uh, an effect of of getting exposed to these forever chemicals. And I have a long list here, and I think this is just a. Uh, I think this is just a, a, a an edited list. <laughs> I definitely endocrine disruption issues in children, in fetal development, in um, that that uh, aspect, testicular cancer, kidney, liver, pancreatic cancer, reproductive problems, low sperm counts, um, weakened childhood immunity, and no, uh, I've been reading as well that sometimes getting exposure will actually make vaccines for kids not work as well as, as it might. Low birth weight, increased cholesterol, which is extraordinary. And I, you know, for the, for our, our listeners, I want to tell you that this is not the only program we're going to be doing on, on uh, the forever chemicals. And we'll, we'll be getting into some of these other aspects as well. But uh, this is, uh, thank you, uh, Patrick uh, McRoy for being here for, and we'll, for, for giving us the 101, 201, 301 on what, uh, what uh, PFAS is, <laughs> forever chemicals are. Weight gain in children and dieting adults, difficulty, you know, diabetes and, and things like that related. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit uh, I, I, from your, your work as an epidemiologist. Now, I learned something when I was uh, speaking with you to, when we were organizing this, that you don't have to be a medical doctor to be called an epidemiologist. We're going to ask Dr. Shaw about that later, but uh, right here in Maine, our CDC director. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, before we do that, I just want to tell people, if you just tuned in, uh, I'm Rhonda Feynman. This is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. We're discussing PFAS, or Forever Chemicals, with Patrick McRoy, Deputy Director of the Public Health Advocacy Organization, Defend Our Health. So that's that was a, a lot in, in that last uh, paragraph for me. Uh, where, how do we unpack that? What do we know? And what's what about blood levels? What do we what do we know about some of this? So most of what we know about the health impacts of PFAS come from 
a combination of animal studies and a combination of epidemiological studies. Uh, so probably the most robust epidemiological study of PFAS comes from workers uh, who are exposed in some of the factories that were making it, as well as the communities around those factories that were heavily polluted. Uh, so there was a large study, uh, it's often referred to as the C8 study, uh, that was done in West Virginia of uh, communities who are around one of the facilities making uh, and using uh, one of the older PFAS compounds. It's one of the largest epidemiological studies on record, uh, and it showed very, with very strong evidence the increased risks in kidney and testicular cancer that you mentioned, as well as uh, some of the changes in cholesterol and liver enzymes as well as the risks of uh, preeclampsia. Um, other studies have um, more recently shown quite a bit of immune system impact from PFAS, particularly in children. We know that children with higher levels of PFAS have lower uh, titers when they, after they get their uh, vaccinations. That, that's their immune the system. The strength and the, the efficacy of the uh, vaccine. The, the extent to which, yeah, extent to which your body is manufacturing antibodies, right, in response to the vaccine. Uh, so we know there are immune system impacts. Uh, there's a growing body of literature uh, for some endocrine disrupting impacts uh, that you mentioned as well. So there, there's a whole host of, of potential health concerns as a result of exposure to these chemicals. Uh, and it's you know, frightening to me because as we were talking about earlier, because these chemicals were so widely used, pretty much every man, woman, and child in the United States has PFAS in their blood. Uh, we know from biomonitoring studies uh, that have measured uh, folks' blood on a statistical basis that it's universal that there is some exposure. Uh, in fact, if you go back and look at some of the historical research on this and what the chemical companies knew and when they knew it, uh, as they began to realize that these chemicals are in the blood of their workers and in folks in the communities surrounding the facilities, they started trying to go out and find uh, clean blood samples to use as a sort of a comparison and reference, uh, and they couldn't find samples from anywhere in the U.S. that didn't already have uh, PFAS in the blood uh, and ended up having to go back to archive samples taken uh, from Korean War uh, recruits uh, in order to find uh, blood samples that did not have existing PFAS levels. So it's really quite, quite shocking uh, how much we've already all been exposed to these chemicals. Mm. Let's all take a breath. Let's have a little sip of water, filtered, I hope. Do filters take those out? What do we know? Now, let's, okay, there's so many levels here, uh, so many places to go. What are the numbers we're talking about? Now, I know there's some legislation and I, I you know, we'll get into it a tiny bit, but um, this idea of what numbers are acceptable, are, is anything acceptable? And, and then what are we looking at in, in terms of, with these studies of, of what, what these numbers are? What are we talking about in terms of levels? 
So one of the reasons why PFAS is we see these potential toxic effects from exposure to very, very low levels. Um, and that's, again, because of the properties of these chemicals, since they don't break down and they take a long time to be excreted from your body, you get a small amount of them every day over time, and it builds up to uh, higher levels in your body. Uh, so that's why we really worry about very small concentrations, very small amounts of these chemicals. So in drinking water, uh, for example, uh, Maine now uses a standard of 20 parts per trillion uh, for the combination of six specific PFAS compounds. Uh, and levels over 20 parts per trillion are considered uh, to be excessive and uh, requiring action to make them lower. And is that acceptable to advocates of, uh, of maybe not using these chemicals anymore? What What is that conversation like? It's... Uh, it's better than where we were at before. Uh, so prior to last year, there was no enforceable standard in Maine for PFAS in drinking water. There was an, uh, an old advisory level from the US EPA, which was 70 parts per trillion for only two specific compounds. Uh, so we've gone you know, considerably lower and looking at a broader range. Okay. Uh, many of the scientists and experts who are working on this uh, suggest a level of one part per trillion or less as being more health protective. Uh, and recently the US EPA, which it still hasn't regulated these chemicals nationally in drinking water, they proposed to their scientific advisory board a number of studies on the impacts of PFAS uh, from drinking water. And if the EPA were to follow uh, the recommendations of those studies, they would end up with a level under one part per trillion as well. So there is a growing movement toward recognition of lower and lower numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is becomes technically difficult at point to both, you know, measure uh, and treat water to get below those numbers. So, you know, we're, we're happy that Maine uh, moved considerably last year uh, and now uses a standard that's one of the more uh, health protective standards in the country. Uh, but as we continue to learn more about PFAS, uh, those numbers are only going to drop further. You know, just as uh, I, I meant to ask this earlier, the, there's PFAS, and then I've been reading about PFOS. Is that just one of the chemicals? Is that just, what is the difference? Because that does come up in, in the literature that for us lay people, <laughs> what, what am I looking uh, at? Two of the most common uh, older PFAS are PFOA and PFOS. Uh, so those are two specific types of the class of chemicals known as PFAS. Okay. okay. And so that so that's what they're talking about. That's some of the things they're measuring. Those are probably. Yeah, PFOA and PFOS are two of the six PFAS that we regulate in drinking water now.
Do you know the other four, or is that I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I will. I, I am I am not going to try to name them off the top. Of my head. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll get that information somehow. That seems important. Now they're doing different things in Europe with all of this, aren't they? Is there what's happening in Europe, and what can we learn from the work they're doing, or is there something we should learn from that? Broadly, Europe approaches regulating toxic chemicals differently than the U.S. Uh, the U.S. very much has an innocent until proven guilty approach to chemical safety. Uh, we pretty much wait until we can demonstrate uh, way beyond a reasonable doubt that a chemical is harmful before we take action. And by that point, it is already in the environment, in, our, in the products, and probably in our bodies causing harm. Europe has moved more broadly to an approach of actually proving chemicals have some degree of safety before allowing their use. You just broke um, up. The so system that was, is far from... Wait, you just broke up. So uh, there's some level oh. of safety before... Yeah, sit back a little bit, and then I think that'll help. Um, thank you. Uh, just... Um, uh, so there is a level of they they go by safety first, not not prove me they, prove me wrong. Yeah, exactly. Europe, Europe tries to collect the data up front to show the chemical is safe uh, before allowing its widespread use. Uh, so PFAS are a challenge internationally, uh, and Europe is still uh, struggling and learning a lot as well. Uh, because these chemicals have been around for so long. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, Europe has a different, and I would suggest better approach to regulating toxic chemicals. Now, you have a great history of, of working with toxic chemicals in our homes in terms of uh, mercury and radon and uh, formaldehydes and, and, and all of that. Now, the difference is that those chemicals, do they, they break down? Don't they? They disappear or do they not? What's what do we know about? I'm just trying to get a comparison. I know we've started this whole show with this idea that things don't these don't break down. But the things that you've worked at in the past, are those, you know, easier to work with or I mean, they're not easy, but. Yeah, no, I mean, many of the other toxic chemicals. Uh, that we encounter on a daily basis do break down uh, and are more easily excreted from your body. Uh, you know, mercury and lead, you know, are elements, they don't break down and those are, you know, have to be managed, you know, in a forever chemical sort of way uh, as well. Um, but they're fundamentally uh, easier to measure we better understand where they have been used uh, and uh, we've been controlling them for a long time. Uh, not adequately. I mean, childhood lead poisoning is still a major problem and, and something we could do a whole nother show about sometime if you'd like. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, many of the other chemicals, uh, you know, that we are concerned about various solvents and, and so forth are going to uh, break down over time, uh, especially when they're in the environment. Uh, you know, if we, uh, when they get out into soil, they can be a problem for sure. Uh, but we know they're 
going to eventually uh, break down in some way. And when they enter your body, uh, many of them will also uh, get broken down in some way. Well, I definitely know that there are ways to rid the body of lead uh, and, and mercury and there, and we'll, we'll do shows on this as well. I want to talk about now what we know about what's happening in the soils, and I, I'm hoping you can answer some of this. Uh, I know uh, that there are studies and then there are, there are places in, I think in Portland, you're in Portland, where uh, they've been using different kinds of plants and such to get mercury and other chemicals out of the, out of the soil. Uh, spinach and sunflowers, uh, are those kinds of things going to be useful in the soil, you know, to do this with some of the, uh, of these forever chemicals. And I just read an article, something in the Bangor Daily News just the other day, or the other month, I believe, about using hemp, the idea of hemp uh, coming back as, as a way of, of cleaning and, and fixing the soil. And you're shaking your head, and I I, I'm going to let you talk now and tell us why with that smile, what, 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 you know? Yeah. So we, we broadly refer to that as phytoremediation, right? Using plants grown in contaminated soil to help remove the contaminants. And there has been evidence uh, over the years of that being done successfully for heavy metals. Um, and there are, as you mentioned, attempts to use hemp uh, to pick up PFAS from the soil uh, the challenge with that is you then have to safely dispose of that hemp uh, because you've moved the PFAS from the soil into the plant. I think the other challenge that we still don't have a full handle on is how many and which PFAS are being picked up by the plants, right? So we talked earlier about how we really only measure, you know, 30 of the many thousands of PFAS chemicals. And that's true with what's being done now with the studies of phytoremediation. Uh, we're only really looking at the efficacy uh, of removing a handful of the PFAS. And we know that plants seem to pick up different PFAS in different ways and amounts. Uh, so I'm a little hesitant to say that that is a solution uh, right now, but certainly. Uh, an encouraging development and something we need to keep researching. Well, to, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, if you have just tuned in, we are, uh, you're, you're listening to the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our guest today is Patrick McRoy, Deputy Director of Defend Our Health. The topic is Forever Chemicals or PFAS, PFAS, <laughs> and the harm caused by these toxic toxic substances, which are everywhere in the soil, in the water, in our bodies. And we were just discussing some phyto uh, remediation that is looks promising, but we don't have any all the entire uh, picture yet about whether how how successful that would be. I'm I, I also know that 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 some of the people who have been exposed in, in, in here in our state and probably all over with these very, very high numbers, uh, I'm going to be looking into and hopefully we'll be doing some more programs on what detoxification is possible. I do know off right away that things like seaweeds, and it gets complicated because if we're polluting the water and we want to use seaweeds, which we know are deep, can help us detoxify, 
uh, but we want to use that to detoxify, we cannot be polluting the seaweed. So we need things, we, we need to be thinking about, about that whole environmental, the big picture uh, about, about how well we're going to handle this. But I do know that miso soup, miso and seaweeds, um, the Japanese have a lot of uh, uh, history from this, from of course the atomic nuclear explosions that happened in their country, and that using these uh, kinds of chemicals, hijiki, arame, uh, can, be, uh, can be helpful, wakame. Uh, and so that's something to, that we will explore further and do other shows on as well, but I just want to throw that out for people uh, to add those kinds of things very safely, for the most part. Again, uh, I, this is not a, a health advice situation, but um, it's something to consider as we uh, talk about blood and uh, our human, the human condition of, of what, this, what this is. Are there any um, fields being tested? I mean, is there any research being done? I know you said you can't say definitively about hemp and all these other uh, plants, uh, but is that... a is that a deliberate ongoing research that's being done? Definitely, definitely. Um, both on a, a national basis and international basis, there's interest in better exploring what sort of crops absorb what sort of PFAS and can that be a tool. But here in Maine specifically, uh, there's been quite a bit of interest in uh, one of the pieces of legislation we are working on this session is a bill that's intended to help farmers who have been impacted by PFAS in Maine. Uh, the primary focus of it is to provide both medical monitoring uh, for potential adverse impacts from PFAS exposure, as well as financial relief, uh, so that farmers who are facing a loss of their livelihood because of the contamination of their crops uh, receive financial support uh, and potentially even farm buyouts if the land cannot be farmed because of the contamination. Uh, but there is also in that bill language that will allow the state to further uh, commission studies of what crops uh, can be grown in contaminated land, either because they do not pick up the PFAS uh, and therefore you know, could be safe to consume or uh, which are effective at removing the PFAS. Uh, so it's definitely an area of interest that people are pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and you know, it, 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 at, at Healthy Options, and all of us, we want solutions. We want to be able to say, do this and you'll feel better. Take that and you'll feel better. Having those options. And so it is frustrating here. And I'm going to do more research on this with, with uh, other uh, medical colleagues and such to say wow what what is what when you say a forever chemical what 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 does that really mean i mean we know it's there but the, is there a way is there something we, we like to think that if if we've d done something that there'll be a counter you know something cannot be 
you know, what, what, what is the physical, the physics of it all? Was something, yeah, matter is created and not destroyed or is created and destroyed and we have an equal number and, you know, plate tectonics and, you know, things, uh, <laughs> volcanoes coming up to, uh, to keep, uh, keep, uh, the cycle going. So, you know, all of a sudden the earth doesn't have bulges, you know, where we are keeping our mass, uh, uh, pretty stable. We can have that conversation as well. We get esoteric here sometimes uh, here at here at, at Healthy Options. But the idea that it just it, it, you know we I would like to to give people hope the sense that there is something we can do and I'm, I don't know what that is right now and I would I think what I'm hearing is you don't know what that is and maybe we don't know. I don't what that know. Is. Yeah, I definitely don't know what that is from a medical perspective. Um, I think you know there's a lot of research that needs to be done in terms of how do we deal with the impact of PFAS on the body, you know, and what is an effective way to um, facilitate your body excreting it more faster, potentially. Um, you know, I think the most important thing, you know, for people who have been exposed to PFAS from a medical standpoint is to get the routine medical care and you know, be checked for the potential illnesses that are associated, right? So you mentioned increased cholesterol levels was something that was identified in the C8 study. People should be probably having their cholesterol checked anyway, but this is more reason to be diligent about that. Uh, be diligent for the signs of testicular and kidney cancer. Uh, but from a, you know, broader perspective of how to deal with PFAS, I think the most important thing we can do is stop introducing more PFAS into the environment and into our bodies. Uh, and, you know, Maine made significant progress uh, in that last year by passing a law that will require uh, the elimination of uh, all but the most critical uh, uses of PFAS from products by 2030. Uh, and by critical or essential use, we mean stuff that's really necessary for health and safety, right? So if there are PPE, for example, uh, that really need to be PFAS in order to protect people from other hazardous chemicals uh, or from fires or whatever, then, you know, that may be an acceptable trade-off, but we don't need PFAS in our fast food wrappers, right? We don't need it in our compostable plates. We don't need it in our outerwear, uh, and Maine is at the forefront of creating legislation to do this. Uh, but it's still going to take a lot of time and effort uh, for the state to implement those rules, and they're going to face quite a bit of pushback from industry as that moves forward. So I think the most important thing, you know, that all of us can do uh, to continue to address PFAS is make sure our policymakers, our decision makers know that we want them to address this problem and work on policies that'll actually get PFAS out of products and prevent it from continuing to go into the environment. Well, I do know that it's, uh, that it's in the, um, we, there was just in Belfast, I know this may be repeated at some point, this program, but um, there was a huge fire at one of our uh, one of our local in industrial uh, food processing uh, uh, plants, uh, and I know that the foam 
that the firefighters use has PFAS in it. And now I know that there's some thought and concern about, is that going into our bay? Is that going into the river? Because the river is right there and the bay is right there. Uh, I, that's just, we're just at the beginning of that conversation, so nothing to say, but these are the, the questions, you know, nothing definitive to say, but these are the questions being asked about that. Um, I also know that, that in terms of the food chain, that PFAS have been found in the fish in Maine. And so we have conversations about fish, farm, farm fish here in, in Maine. And is that safe? What's going to be going into the, um, into the water again? So I imagine that those are the kinds of questions. Tell me if I'm wrong. I, I can imagine many things. <laughs> but um, uh, that part of that legislation would be addressing some of that. Obviously, we want to keep the fire. We want to put the fires out in a, in a, a way that doesn't have, uh, you know, other repercussions of chemical, other chemicals on site blowing up, which was a concern, ammonia blowing up. Um, so that quote trade-off is uh, is really tricky, isn't it? And is that the legislation that that talks about some of that? Uh, tell me what you know about yeah that. no absolutely so the the firefighting foam uh is what we call a triple f uh aqueous film forming foam uh that's the the variety that had PFAS in it uh and that has actually been one of the largest sources of uh groundwater contamination uh nationally so we know in you know mo many parts of the country a lot of the PFAS problem can be traced to that firefighting foam. Uh, Maine did pass a law last year uh, regarding uh, firefighting foam that uh, prohibits the sale of foam that contains PFAS going forward. Fire departments were allowed to use uh, PFAS containing foam they already had uh, for emergency situations. There was concern that you know between local budgets and availability and so forth that fire departments may not be able to procure the PFAS free variety quickly. Uh, so they were allowed to use for emergencies only uh, existing stocks of PFAS foam. Although we are, you know, the state is supposed to be working with the fire departments to uh, get rid of that old. PFAS foam and replace it with newer varieties that do not have PFAS. Well, uh, so this, we do know there are there are alternatives to the foam available now. So well, it's interesting then if there are alternatives and they work, <laughs> why were they in there in the first place? Interesting. That that is a long, long story, and you could you could probably do a whole other episode on that. But the the short version is. Um, there, I think a lot of the foams were originally developed with PFAS. It had a lot of properties that were helpful when there began to be some of the concerns more broadly known. That's when folks began looking at alternatives. Uh, but because of a number of uh, standards from the Department of Defense nationally that are heavily influenced by industry, uh, the alternatives have not been fully certified for all uses. Uh, so there are still nationally, there's still an ongoing challenge that 
The Department of Defense is requiring PFAS containing foams for some uses, and the FAA is requiring PFAS containing foams uh, for airports. Um, so there's there's still some challenges there that you know are largely due to you know I would argue undue industry influence, um, but you know there has been a lot of progress made in moving towards uh, alternatives, particularly for uh, our local fire departments mm -hmm. who are you know, doing uh, building fires and uh, everyday firefighting activity. Yes, and, and also you were saying about in our clothing and, and food, we certainly don't need it in our food wrapper, or any wrappers, it doesn't have to be fast food. What, you know, cheese at buying cheese at the grocery store, you get these, you know, wax papery, PFAB things that we now I know are PFAS. Um, goodness, um, the you know and you, what you did mention about uh, for the health aspect of people definitely staying being monitored, and I, I do want to say as an uh, that um, as always it really comes down to being treated as an individual as whatever your constitution is, whatever your situation is, and working to maintain your own health and your own uh, well, good balance in, in your life to, even though you've been exposed, it may be in your blood, to really maintain that health, healthy style, lifestyle and health of balance, as you were saying, to look at, get your blood tested and to do all of that on a regular basis, but also to do other personal things that we will talk about in terms of, uh, of maintaining health that I think uh, we're going to find in the long run will be, will be useful because, um, uh, yeah, because that's all we can say right now. <laughs> Um, and it's interesting if you're saying there are alternatives. Now, do we know, I, I guess keep coming back to rain gear because it's really, uh, you know, this idea of being able to be outside and not get totally wet is, and, and, and for a hiker, an outdoors person is so important. I, I guess we're just going back to the basics, you know, use, use, well, for your containers, use glass again use glass containers, use, buy things in glass, right? Uh, use, going back to the, to the basics. I'm not sure what the basics are uh, for, for rain gear, uh, <laughs> or if you know of any other alternatives that are being used instead of uh, the, the products we're so used to. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm just saying, keep it simple. Go back to some simplicity, right? Yeah, and I, and I think it's also, um, considering the potential trade-offs too. Are, you know, is a raincoat that is good for, uh, you know, two hours in the rain adequate, or do you really need one that's going to last, you know, 15 hours in the rain? And for a serious, you know, hiking expedition, you might need the 15 hour one, but for your everyday, uh, you know, commute to work, you probably don't need that extreme. Uh, and that's where a lot of the manufacturers have run into challenges is some of the alternatives are effective um, for a shorter duration uh, or, uh, you know, not quite the same level of performance. And they think folks demand the highest level of performance. However, even at the very high levels of performance, uh, many of the uh, outdoors 
manufacturers, out there, equipment manufacturers are finding uh, new alternatives to PFAS okay. that are long lasting. And several of them have issued commitments uh, to either uh, have already stopped using PFAS or have a timetable to get out of it. Uh, so we are oh. seeing the industry uh, respond to laws like Maine's uh, with action. And that's, that's important to see. Well, we are just coming to the end of our program. Uh, this has been a fascinating introduction and, and more than that. And as I said, we are going to continue this exploration from the um, health point of view about what else we can do. And I'm going to, uh, yeah, let's just keep this conversation going and, and, and everybody uh, get in touch with your local uh, 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 representatives and talk about what we're doing in Maine and, and stay engaged about this issue. Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Patrick McRoy, Deputy Director of Defend Our Health. Very scary and difficult to hear all of this, as we've been saying, but it must be discussed and hopefully dealt with for the health of our environment and all living things, human and not human. <laughs> so thank you so much, uh, Patrick Ma uh, McRoy. We appreciate your speaking with us today. We'll have a link to the organization Defend Our Health and to other information that was mentioned in the public affairs archives of this Healthy Options Program on WERU.org. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman. I'm wishing you the best in health.